Again, we're so honored that you're watching the program, but we do hope and pray that you're telling your friends and your neighbors about it. We always invite our television audience to worship with us at the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ, 2201 Rainbow Drive in Gadsden. Our Bible study this morning is at 10.30 a.m. Our worship hour, at, uh, uh, I mean, our Bible study is at 9.30, and our worship hour is at 10.30 a.m., and our evening worship hour is at 6 o'clock p.m. Our midweek Bible study is 7 o'clock p.m. We're having some terrific crowds at Rainbow, and there's a tremendous spirit of enthusiasm, and I really believe that you'll love this congregation. I believe you'll love these brethren. If you'll just come and give us an opportunity and see how we worship God and see how we conduct ourselves and uh, get a feeling of the closeness of this congregation, the love that permeates this congregation, the wonderful eldership that we have, the great staff. We just have a marvelous group of people, and I really believe that you would be very, very happy if you came here. And I know if you're looking for the truth religiously, if you're not a member of the Lord's Church, I know that if you'll come and worship with us that you'll hear the Bible preached and you'll see New Testament Christianity practiced just exactly as nearly as we can possibly do it to the way they practice it in the first century. So do come and worship with us. You'll be a very honored guest and we just would love more than you can possibly know to have you. I want you to turn your Bibles with me now to Matthew, the 19th chapter. I want us to read one of the more famous incidents that took place in the life of Christ, and that'll be our text for this morning. Beginning with the 16th verse of Matthew 19. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest me thou, thou good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell what thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is just a tremendous story, and it teaches so many great biblical lessons. First of all, let's look at what this incident teaches that doesn't save a person. Number one, the incident proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that good works are not what saves us. This man did all kinds of good works. He was a righteous young man. How many people in this world can say what that young man said? That he never committed murder? He never committed adultery? That he didn't uh, steal? that he didn't bear false witness, that he honored his father and mother, and that he loved his neighbor as himself. He was a righteous man, but he wasn't saved man. Therefore, the story proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that one cannot be saved through his own righteousness, through his own goodness, through his own uh, meritorious, if you will, works. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's why he said in Titus 3 and 5, 
5, it is not by works of righteousness we are saved, which we are saved, but according to his mercy he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in Luke 17 and 10, after we have done all that hath been commanded of us, we are still unprofitable servants, for we have done only that which is our duty to do. So this story in the in the scriptures that I've just quoted prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that one cannot be saved through his own goodness, through his own righteousness, through his own works, through his own efforts, if you will. The story proves, number two, that morality in and of itself won't save us. We all understand that every person that wants to please God is going to be just as moral as he or she can. But morality in and of itself isn't what's going to save us. This young man was a moral person. Boy, if he had come into one of our congregations today, and he would have said to us what he was able to say to the Lord, that he never had committed adultery, that he had never stolen, that he had never lied, never bore false witness, that he honored his father and mother, and that he loved his neighbor as himself, while every one of us would be saying, that's exactly what I would like my son or my daughter to be like. What a great young man. We would have elevated him if he had come into one of our congregations today. So he obviously was a highly moral person, highly moral individual. But that morality didn't save him because he was not in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. The morality in and of itself didn't save him. Over in Acts 10, chapter the second verse, we read about Cornelius, who was a devout man, who prayed to God always, who gave willingly of his alms to the people, and was just the kind of a man that uh, was a good and decent and honorable and moral man. But we read in Acts 11 and 14 and read throughout the 10th chapter of the book of Acts that he was not saved even though he was a very moral man because Peter said in Acts 11 and 14 that he had to bring words unto Cornelius whereby he might be saved. So his morality, again, in and of itself, didn't save him. And this rich young ruler's morality in and of itself did not save him. Number three, we learn from this incident that wealth and power and position on this earth does not save a person. Here was a wealthy young man. Here was a powerful young man, a ruler, a ruler, the rich young ruler. Here was a man who had attained an earthly position of great prominence and importance. But he wasn't in a right relationship with Jesus. He still wasn't saved. You can be the president of the United States of America and still be lost. You know, when President Reagan was president of our country, now... I don't ever preach politics, don't get politics into my preaching, and not going to do it in this lesson, but I just want to make a point. Mr. Reagan was president of our country. He was a strong advocator of school prayer and prayer in the schoolroom and was very much opposed to abortion. Consequently, it seems that many people in our country looked on Mr. Reagan as the ultimate of what a Christian should be, the epitome of Christianity. Well, I'm not here to judge Mr. Reagan or anyone else, but I'm here to tell you, that you can be against abortion, you can be in favor of school prayer, and you can be the President of the United States of America and still be lost. Being against abortion and being in favor of prayer in the school is not what saves a person. Holding a position of influence, a position of importance, is not what saves a person. This man held a position of influence, a position of importance, if anything. Holding a position of influence and holding a position in which you're very popular among the people might make it a whole lot more difficult for one to get to heaven, for one to please God. In the 24th verse of Matthew 19, when Jesus said that it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it would be for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's one of those verses that have given a lot of people a lot of problems. 
gave me a lot of problems for a long time. What is Jesus saying there? Seemingly, he's talking about the eye of the needle that a woman uses when she sews. Well, or uses when she sews. Well, it seems then, on the surface, that Jesus must be teaching that it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, now we know that it's not impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because we can read in the Bible about many rich men who were right with God, who were saved. On the Old Testament dispensation, Abraham was rich. David was rich. Jacob was rich. They were all children of God. Certainly we believe that they were saved, that they were in a covenant relationship with the Lord in that particular dispensation. Zacchaeus was rich, whom Jesus converted in Luke, the 19th chapter. That richness didn't... Uh, cause them to lose their souls. And Jesus didn't say to any of those people, you give what you have to the poor and come follow me. So wealth, material possessions, in and of themselves, friends and brethren, that, that isn't what's wrong. And that isn't what's going to cause a person to lose his soul. Well, then, what is the problem with riches? And why was Jesus saying here in Matthew 19 and 24 that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Well, you know, there's so many theories concerning Matthew 19 and 24 and so many efforts to almost to explain away what Jesus said because it would seemingly on the surface then be impossible for any rich man to get to heaven based on what Jesus said in the 24th verse of Matthew 19 that some have come up with alternating or alternative explanations, if you will. One explanation, one theory is, is that back in those days in the wall that they had at Jerusalem, there was a hole that was called the needle, and that hole in the wall was maybe three and a half, four feet high. Well, in order to get a camel through it, you had to put the camel down on all fours and put him on his knees, and somebody had to get on the one side of the wall and pull, and the other people had to get on the other side of the wall and push, and with a great amount of effort, you could get a camel through that hole in the wall that was called the eye of the needle back then, called the needle's eye. Well, there are some scholars who believe that Jesus was making reference to that hole in the wall at Jerusalem and pointing out that though it's very difficult for a person, to, for a camel to get through that uh, eye of that needle, it can be done. And though it would be very difficult for a rich man to get to heaven, he, he still can get to heaven. But I have never really bought that explanation. It just never made sense to me, never added up to me. Now, I think the two most plausible explanations for Jesus' words in Matthew, the 19th chapter, the 24th verse, are the two that I'm going to give you. Number one, it's very possible that Jesus is using here hyperbolic language, hyperboles or hyperboles. You know what a hyperbole is now. A hyperbole is when you exaggerate intentionally, without any idea of deceiving the person that you're exaggerating to, but you exaggerate in an effort to make a point, trying to emphasize a point. A lie is when you attempt to deceive someone, when you tell someone an untruth and you're trying to convince him of this untruth. Now, that's a lie. A hyperbole is when you make an exaggeration that's not in design to deceive anyone. You're not attempting to teach that person untruth. You're just trying to emphasize a point, and the person knows that you're exaggerating. He knows you're using the hyperbole. Now, let me give you a couple examples of that. Let's just say that I went to a basketball game and saw Michael Jordan play basketball. I come home that night and I say to whomever I'm speaking to, that Michael Jordan can jump over the moon. Well, now no one understands me to be speaking literally. 
No one understands me to be saying that Michael Jordan can literally, actually jump over the moon. I'm using hyperbole in order to emphasize how high Michael Jordan can jump. That he can jump amazingly high for a human being. If I go to a baseball game and I see a man hit a home run, and I come home and say, boy, that guy hit that ball a mile. Well, now everybody knows that I'm not speaking literally. If you hit a baseball 400 feet, that's a long way. I think the longest home run on record is only somewhere around 550 feet, while a mile is 5,280 feet. So it's impossible to hit a baseball a mile. Therefore, when you hear somebody say, well, he hit that one a mile, no one understands him to be speaking in a literal sense. He's using hyperboles, hyperbolic language, in order to emphasize a point. He just wants to make the point that that man hit that baseball a long way. Now, that's not lying. That's just the language and the way we use language. Now, Jesus often used hyperboles in his teaching. In Matthew 23 and 15, when he said to the Pharisees, You encompass land and sea to make one proselyte. And when he's made, you make him twofold more a child of hell than ye yourselves. Now, no one is to understand that Jesus was saying, literally, that these Pharisees encompassed all the land and all of the sea that they were aware of at their particular time. That isn't the point, and that isn't what Jesus was teaching there. What he was saying is, is these Pharisees will go to great extremes to make a convert, and when he's made, what have they got? He's still twofold more than a child of hell. They've converted him to the wrong thing. Jesus was just emphasizing how far Pharisees would go in an effort to make a convert. When he said in Matthew 7, Why beholdest thou the mote that's in thy brother's eye, and considereth not the beam that's in thine own eye? Everyone understands that Jesus was not speaking literally there. He wasn't talking about literal motes and literal beams. He was exaggerating, if you will, in order to make a point, in order to emphasize a truth. You know, why are people who have such great problems themselves always looking for problems in other people? Why are they so quick to jump on the minor weaknesses of other people when they have major weaknesses of their own? You know, it's been my experience that people who are hypercritical, people who are constantly looking for the bad in other people, people that are constantly looking for the negative, you investigate their lives, and you'll find out that they have great, great problems of their own, much greater than the weaknesses that they see in other people. But somebody once said that uh, misery loves company, and if they find something wrong, or at least in their mind, something wrong with other people, that somehow... Evidently, it leaves their guilt feelings and their guilty conscience. But anyway, that's the point that Jesus was making there. He wasn't using literal language. He wasn't talking about literal beams and literal motes. Well, is it not possible that that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 19 and 24? That he's using hyperbolic language? It would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's simply emphasizing how difficult it will be for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven because so often rich people's first love is their material things, the material things of this world. That was the problem with this rich young ruler. That was his besetting weakness, his besetting sin, his love for the material things of this world. The reason Jesus said, give what you have to the poor and come follow me, is because that was what stood between him and God. The reason that Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus to give what you have to the poor, Zacchaeus said he would pay fourfold, return fourfold to the people that he had amused, abused, the people that he had deceived. And the reason Jesus didn't say to him, now you give what you have to the poor and come follow me, is because that wasn't Zacchaeus' great problem. He had material possessions, but he wasn't in love with those material possessions. Evidently, with this rich young ruler, his 
besetting weakness was his love for the material things of this life, and that was proven. When Jesus said, now you give what you have to the poor and come follow me, and the rich young ruler walked sadly away because he had great possessions. Now, if the rich young ruler's besetting sin or weakness would have been adultery, Jesus would have said, give up your adultery and come follow me. If his besetting sin or weakness would have been uh, stealing or being dishonest, lying, cheating, Jesus would have said, give up your dishonesty, give up your stealing. Give up your lying. Give up your cheating and come follow me. If his besetting weakness would have been uh, abusing his mother and father, Jesus would have said, stop abusing your mother and father and come follow me. If his besetting weakness would have been bitterness and vengefulness and hatefulness towards other people, Jesus would have said, give up your bitterness and your vengefulness and your hatefulness towards other people and come follow me. His besetting weakness was the fact that he loved the material things of this world. That's what stood between him and a right relationship with the Lord. He gave the material things first place in his life. So Jesus said, now you give what you have to the poor and come follow me. And the rich young ruler walks sadly away. Then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What kind of a rich man, Jesus? This kind of a rich man. A rich man that puts his material goods above my message. A rich man that puts his material goods above his salvation. A rich man that puts his material possessions ahead of his relationship with me. Easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it would be for that kind of a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. If the rich ruler's problem would have been adultery and Jesus would have said, give up your adultery and come follow me and he'd have walked sadly away, Jesus might have turned to his disciples and said, be easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for an adulterer to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Kind of an adulterer. We read where all kinds of adulterers were forgiven. The adulterous woman in John 8. The sinful woman in Luke 7. Uh, David. They committed adultery. God forgave them. Well, then, when, if Jesus would have said, be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for an adulterer to enter the kingdom of heaven, what kind of an adulterer would he be making reference to? This kind of an adulterer. This man that walks away and rejects my truth because he prefers adultery rather than living my way, rather than being in a covenant relationship with me. If his problem would have been... Uh, thievery or lying or cheating or stealing and Jesus would have said give up your lying and come follow me and the rich young ruler would walk sadly away because he loved his lying Jesus might have said to the disciples be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a liar to enter into the kingdom of heaven what kind of a liar a liar that won't give up his lying in order to follow after Jesus Christ so it's very possible that Jesus was simply saying here with his attitude now it's impossible for him to get to heaven you can Put a camel through an eye of a needle. Be just as easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it would be for a man with his attitude, a rich man with his attitude to enter the kingdom of heaven. Apostle said, well, then who can be saved? Jesus said, now, though this seems to be impossible to you, all things are possible with my heavenly Father. What does he mean there? Well, it could be that he means that the man could repent. He could change as deep into his sin as he is. As much as he loves the material things of this world, as, as, as impossible as it is for him to go to heaven with this attitude, it's very possible that he could change somewhere along the way, could repent, and if he repented, then he would be able to come into a covenant relationship with me. The apostles then asked the question, well, who can be saved? The answer to that question is, all men can be saved. Jesus Christ came into the world to die for all men. God so loved the world 
that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In Titus 2 and 11, we read, Where the grace of God hath appeared unto all men. Hebrews 2 and 9, Jesus became a little lower than the angels, so they might taste death for all men. But now, though all men can be saved, all men are not going to be saved. Because Jesus says in Matthew 7 and 13, Enter ye into the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the path that leadeth to eternal destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. For straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto eternal life, and few there be that find it. Well, who then is going to be saved? Since the Bible teaches that the majority are going to be lost. You know, the universalist, uh, he says that uh, everybody's going to be saved. He says that every person who ever lived is going to be saved. He believes in universal salvation. Well, now, the Bible doesn't teach that, friends and brethren. The Bible simply doesn't teach that everyone is going to be saved. The Bible teaches that the vast majority are going to be lost. Why does the Bible teach that? Because the vast majority are going to reject Jesus Christ. Well, then, what do we have to do to be saved? Who is going to be saved? Well, the first thing we have to do, friends and brethren, to be saved is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you believe not in me, you will die in your sins. That's what Jesus says in John 8 and 24. John 3 and 18, those who believe not in me are lost already. They're condemned already, those who believe not in me. The first thing you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's why the, in biblical times they always preach Jesus first and foremost. As God's Son, as the Redeemer of the world. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He preached unto him Jesus. When they believed the things that Philip was preaching concerning the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. The first thing they had to do is believe in Jesus. And that's why they preached the, the uh, sonship of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the uh, divinity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus was whom he claimed to be. If you don't believe in Jesus, no use even going any farther with what the Bible teaches you have to do in order to get to heaven. You've got to believe in Jesus. Secondly, you must repent of your sins. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. What was the problem with the rich young ruler here? The rich young ruler thought that he was so good. He thought that his life was so far beyond reproach that he didn't feel the need to repent. His attitude was, surely, Lord, just because I'm not willing to give what I have to the poor and come follow you, Surely you don't think that that's going to cause me to be lost. I mean, after all, I'm no adulterer. I don't steal. I don't lie. I don't bear any false witness. I honor my father and mother. I love my neighbor as myself. He was just good enough, friends and brethren, to be lost. Just good enough to fail to see his need to repent. That was the problem with the Pharisee over in Luke 18 that said, I thank thee, God, that I'm not like other men. I thank thee that I'm not even like this publican over here. I give a tithe of my earnings. I fast twice in the week. I'm not unjust. I'm not an extortioner. I'm no adulterer. And the publican standing afar off would not even so much as lift up his eyes to the heavens, but smote himself on the breast and said, Lord, O oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, friends and brethren, in order for a person to come into a covenant relationship with Christ, in order for a person to be forgiven of his sins, that person must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that person must repent of his sins. 
That's why Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of your sins. You must be sorry for your sins. You must promise God that in the best way you know how, you're going to turn from those sins. Repentance means a turning, a change of mind, a conversion, an effort to do as God would have you to do, to come out of the darkness unto light, to come out of the old way of life unto God's way of life. And if a person doesn't repent, there's no way for him to get to heaven. That, as I'm convinced, is the reason Jesus said, with the attitude that this rich young ruler has, it's easier for a camel to be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for him to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because he's not going to repent. Friends and brethren, there is a danger as far as our salvation is concerned in being just moral enough to think that our morality can save us. People that, in many cases, like this publican in Luke 18, that have been immoral... They recognize their need for a Savior. They recognize their need for Jesus. And sometimes people that are relatively moral, because of that morality, forget their need for the Savior. And they don't know how to repent because they don't seem to think they have anything to repent of. Well, I'll assure you, by the world's standards, you might be a moral person. But you're still a sinner. In God's eyes, He knows that you're a sinner. You fall short of His goodness and His glory, and you know you fall short of His goodness and His glory. You may not have the weaknesses or have committed the sins that we consider among the big black sins or the overt sins or the more obvious sins, but you've committed, you know, sins that God has to be very displeased with, that you have to be forgiven for. Well, you have got to repent. The great mistake of this rich young ruler is that he did not repent. Then that repentance must manifest itself in obedience unto Jesus Christ in baptism. Therefore, being made perfect, he became the author of salvation unto all those who obey him. Hebrews 5, 8, 9. Not all that say unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but whosoever doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Matthew 7 and 21. So you've got to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You've got to repent of your sins. You must be obedient to your Lord in baptism where you Contact the blood of Jesus Christ. That blood is inappropriated to your lives. That blood cleanses you of your sins. And you're added to the kingdom of our Lord and our Savior. Then you go on and live as best you can for the Lord. And as you're striving to live for the Lord, 1 John 1 and 7 tells us that as we walk in the light, as He is the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. Now the question to every one of you in this assembly this morning is, have you done that? Do you believe Jesus Christ is Son of God? I'm convinced that every single solitary one of you watching this program believes that Jesus Christ is Son of God. Have you repented of your sins? Now that's something that many of you have not done. You've got to do that. Have you obeyed the precious gospel of Jesus Christ? Second Thessalonians, the first chapter, the first of seven through nine, Paul says, To all you are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God, and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you obeyed the gospel, you can be saved. The Lord wants you to be saved. He died so that you could be saved. He wants to save you. Won't you let him do that? Won't you be obedient to him this morning? Believe in him. Repent of your sins. Obey him in baptism so that you can be saved. Don't do as this rich young ruler. Don't walk away from him because you love something in the world more than you love him. Thank you so much for watching the program.